morning, everyone. We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 7 in a moment. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn there ahead of time if you'd like to. 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're going to begin this morning a brand new series entitled Call of Duty. It's a study on the life of King David, who was a warrior king. And so that's where we're going to be starting this morning and going on for the next six weeks after this. Now, I've been pretty upfront and honest, I think, about a lot of my neurosis that goes on in my head. And one of the things, if I might share with you this morning, that uh, is another neurosis, I guess, is the fact that uh, I think about my funeral a lot and have a lot of plans for my own funeral, <laughs> which I share often with my wife, to which all of my plans she feels is inappropriate, so I don't quite get what that means. But things, you know, like, of course, I'll lie in state in our lobby for several weeks and then be buried underneath the lobby in plexiglass for everyone to walk by every single Sunday. I, I have this idea of it, my own video, like, we'll all meet in here because I plan on dying here probably many decades from now, and, and then, like, I'll just show a video, like, giving the announcements, like, good morning, everybody, like, yeah, it's your funeral, but my wife has put the kibosh on all of those sorts of things. In that, um, I'm not sure where that comes from, where I'm going to blame my dad, I think, on, on that one. And the other thing that kind of goes along with this is uh, I like cemeteries. Like, I don't know what it is about cemeteries, but I love going into cemeteries and walking around and looking at all the headstones. And I love reading the headstones and, like, the date of birth and the date of death and how old they were. And I love to just kind of, it's like a guessing game, like trying to guess what happened in their life and what's the story behind this person who's now passed on. And, and even sometimes you get epitaphs, you know, what they say. And so, of course, in my mind, I'm always thinking about, like, my tombstone, what I like it to say on my epitaph, which is always goofy and humorous. My wife always says not appropriate, and so I'm not sure what to do with all those things. But I like, like, Merv Griffin, when he died, he decided to put on his tombstone, I will not be back after these messages. I thought, it's not bad. Yeah. And because I have hypochondria and think I'm always sick, of course, I like the classic William Hahn has on his, I told you I was sick. <laughs> I think this one, the, a little defensiveness in it, I think, but Robert Clay Allison put on his tombstone, he never killed a man that didn't need killing. <laughs> it's like, it's like, I like Jerry Fair, who died before his wife. He had inscribed on his, I was supposed to live to be 102 and be shot by a jealous husband. <laughs> oh, I don't know if the kids did this to Lawrence L. Cook Jr., but they put on his, Ma loves Pa, Pa loves women. Ma caught Pa with two in swimming. Here lies Pa. <laughs> Eric W. Jr. put, I made a lot of deals in my life, but I went in the hole on this one. <laughs> I'm going to guess uh, somebody who works in computers, R. Anderson, put connection reset by peer. He came, he saw, he logged out. <laughs> Murphy Dreer Jr. put, this ain't bad once you get used to it. Or the comedian Rodney Dangerfield put on his, there goes the neighborhood. <laughs> what happens in the end is you have to think about the legacy that you're going to leave behind. And I wonder the softeners, like, how are you going to be remembered? What will they say about you once you're gone? And what will be the things that come to mind? And as a pastor, I get to experience this often sometimes with the family. When a loved one has passed on, we meet together, and, and I just ask them questions and stories and what were some characteristics and what are some things that they taught you. And, and sometimes it's a fantastic conversation. I mean, it can last over an hour. We're just telling stories, and there's laughter, and there's crying. You get to hear what this person meant to their family and what they taught and what they were like and, and the legacy that they got to leave behind. And every once in a while, it goes differently. It's sometimes awkward, and sometimes it's strained, and there's not a whole lot that's 
being able to be shared or spoken of or said. And I always walk out of those conversations wondering what my kids will say about me someday when they have to gather into a room and talk about what I meant or what I said or what they can remember. And my fear is that they'll do the, well, he liked Outback cheese fries. He talked about that all the time, which is why we're here today. I mean, that's, what, that's my fear in terms of we're... You know, the only thing they can think of, I said, he always was saying, that's a Facebook status, or he always had his face in his computer or his iPhone. I, I don't want any of those. I want something else. And so when we turn to the scriptures, here's what I note. As we begin our study on King David, what would be cool, what I'd like, what I dream of by way of at the end of my life, how I'd like to be remembered, is an epitaph that can sum up my life and my ministry from God himself to say sort of what he said about King David. And it's in Acts chapter 13, verse 22. This is God speaking, his testimony about the life of David, how he's remembered by God himself. And it says this in verse 22, After removing Saul, he made David their king, and God testified concerning him. Now listen, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. Isn't that cool? Like, could you imagine, at the end of your life, God saying this about you? that you were a person, man or woman, after his own heart. And that he knew he could trust you to do everything he needed you to do. And there's something in this that just resonates in me that I'd love for God to someday be able to say, I have found son, Sam of Chuck, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. Now, for my boys, it might be a little different ring as we say they are sons of Sam, and then we'll all just think of David Berkowitz, the serial killer, and that will be awkward. But you, you get the idea. It's the, it's the same idea, the same kind of thinking that's in Matthew chapter 15, verse 21. You remember when Jesus tells this parable about the talents where he gives uh, one man five talents, and he goes and makes five more, and another two, makes two more, and in the end, Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things I'm going to put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Like, that's another great epithet on the tombstone. Like, oh, yeah, well done, good and faithful servant. See, it'd be nice to hear this at, my, at the end of my, I'd much rather hear that than, well, he loved apple pie. I'd much rather hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Or you've been faithful in a few things, or even better, Sam is a man after my own heart, and he did everything I wanted him to do. And this is why we're studying the life of David. We're going to examine the life of this man who, when everything was all said and done, through the highs and the lows, through the victories and the defeats, God is able to say, he is a man after my own heart. And I trusted him to do everything that he needed to do. And there are reasons for the study on David. Let me give you three of them. Number one is, I think David is perhaps the most complex and dynamic characters in all of the Bible. I mean, there's no, sometimes you read a character, just real quick, a little blurb, you got, it's kind of feels so one-dimensional, not with King David. I mean, it is three-dimensional, very complex, very descriptive. Now, Jesus will get the most, because he's Jesus. I mean, he'll get four Gospels, but just sheer volume, King David will get more than most other characters in the Bible, and so the complexity of his character is just amazing. But number two, another reason for King David is, is that I think because of the complexity, hang with me. Because of the complexity of King David and his personality, I'm telling you, I think all men can identify with some aspect of his life. Now, here's what I want to say. Now, 
hang with me because I'm about to talk in generalizations and stereotypes and sometimes those are offensive. So don't get offended. Just, just kind of hear the, the spirit and the heart of what I'm trying to say here. But if I had to say, uh, here's what I'd say. I believe that the totality of Christianity in the last century has probably tilted more towards and elevated more feminine characteristics and qualities as the definition or norm of what it means to be spiritual. Okay, now, let me explain this for just a moment. Don't, don't, I'm, I've granted this is stereotypical, and I'm generalizing here. And, and I, I want to have more to say, but I'd simply say, hey, in the end, it feels to me like the doors are shut on men who really are faithful, who really do love Jesus. They're just simply, they're not adept or comfortable with their spiritual lives being determined based on the standard of what might be considered more feminine characteristics and qualities. And let me explain that for just a moment. I think there's been a strong emphasis on feelings and a strong emphasis on the language of relationship to explain our spiritual lives with Jesus and God. And I'm not saying that's wrong. What I'm saying is for most men, that's not their primary language. Like we don't gravitate towards feelings. We don't gravitate towards discussions and language of our relationships. And again, I'm not saying it's wrong. It's just not our go-to. So if I have to connect to God based on feelings or communicate my faith in God in the language of feelings or sing songs that are all about my feelings, then in the end, I'm going to walk around feeling like I stink at this whole Christian thing. Now, the language of relationship typically flows more natural for women. And women seem to not have any problem talking about relationship. How do you think we're doing in our relationship? Are you happy in our relationship? Do you think we could grow closer in our relationship? Most guys are like, did you make cookies? I mean, that's, I mean, they're just, so if the primary way that we talk about our allegiance to Jesus is through the language of relationships, we even say that phrase, don't we? What do we say? Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus, right? I mean, for most guys, they're like, I don't know. I don't know. I like Jesus. <laughs> like, I'm devoted to Jesus. It seems to me to cut out at least a lot of men. And then you just tack on to that everything else in terms of what is typical images of, I mean, like that small group thing. Like, is that where guys get together, hold hands, and share their emotions and feelings and work on their relationship with Jesus? And then the guy's out. Like, I'm not involved in that. It's even enforced sometimes by churchy words that I don't think us guys really say outside of these four walls. Like, have you ever had anyone at work get up and invite you to something and say in the end, it's going to be a sweet time of fellowship? I mean, have you ever heard that? I mean, everyone in the break room's like, I'm not interested in a sweet time of fellowship. That just sounds a little awkward. I mean, that's what, but we say those sorts of things. And so, in the end, I just want us to be sensitive to the fact that. Most men aren't real hip about singing songs to about kissing Jesus or laying their head on his breast. Even though they love Jesus, it just sometimes cuts us out. Now, here's what's happened. I think on the other hand then, especially in recent years, in reaction to the feminization of the church, there's been a movement in the church to recapture masculinity, and it plays to the other end of the masculine stereotype where it elevates this idea that men just, we grunt our answers and responses to one another, and we grow beards to impressive lengths, that we shoot things with guns and eat raw meat while asserting our masculine nature by accomplishing feats of strength, which are not limited to, but include taking a part in rebuilding a carburetor and eating bacon steak. There's this perception now and an elevation that men don't have feelings at all or any emotions, and if they do, somehow they're connected to sex, which probably is a little true, but... We're so distracted and fascinated by that new Miller Lite beer can that has that punch top for a smooth flow, we're not even in touch with what we're really thinking. And what I'd say is this. Both extremes don't fit, and it cuts guys out. Like, both extremes seem to me 
to cut out men who know like we're devoted to Jesus and we're wired in such a way that's different. And if, especially if the characteristics and qualities of both of those extremes are held up to the spiritual ideal, then there's a lot of men who aren't getting in. And what I would say about David is, is his personality is so complex, his character is so dynamic that any dude can relate to at least some aspect and identify with some aspect of David's life. That he's this guy who has deep passion and zeal that manifests itself in creativity and art and poetry and music. He's a skilled musician and he's also a prolific poet. He's a lover and he's a warrior with no equal. He's a man's man who's able to strike down the enemies of God with such ferocity and precision that the ladies back home write songs about him. He's skilled with both a sword and a harp. David seems to me to be a complex renaissance man that I think every man in some way can identify with that character. Here's the third thing, the reason why I want to stay the life of David. And that is because he's relatable in the sense that his story is real. The Bible doesn't sugarcoat it at all. I mean, he has great highs and he has terrible lows. He has great victories and then he has great defeats. He was a man who could not have been any more obedient to the heart and will of God, and he had moments when it could not have been even greater failure. He was a man in who every way felt the consequences and effect of both his righteousness and his sin, and the Bible describes all of it for us without hedging anything. And I would say this, I love Jesus, and he's our hero. Like, he's our template. King David's not the template over Jesus. Jesus is the template. And, but here's what I have in King David that I don't have in Jesus. So hang with me closely because just even starting a sentence like that feels very awkward. So hear, hear this. With Jesus, here's what I know about from the writer of Hebrews. Jesus was tempted in every way that I am. So he's not unsympathetic to whatever it is that I'm walking through in life and what I'm dealing with and the temptations that come my way. Hebrews will say, we have a high priest who can sympathize with all of our weaknesses. Jesus understands all of that. But Jesus, though, on the other end, came out in perfection. What I have in King David is, what do you do when you really blow it? How do you respond then? See, now with Jesus, he never really blew it. I mean, he was able to walk through those temptations in perfection. But with King David, I get to see an example of what do you do to have a man after God's own heart and totally mess up your life and blow it big time? Now what? Now how do you respond? How do you come out of that? How do you know that God was calling you to this and you in this moment, in this lapse, you went that direction? Now, how do you come out of that? And so I think in it, when we see the story of David and all of its real serious blunders and missteps and sin, and yet still in the very end when it's all said and dead, done, God is still able to say about this man, his heart is after mine. And he'll do what it is that I need him to do. So here's what I want to do in this series. As we start this morning, I'd like to start our journey in the middle of David's life. I want to take you perhaps to the shining, climatic pinnacle of David's life. And picture, you know, have you ever been to a movie where they start in the middle? Like you see the scene as the opening scene, and then the rest of the movie, they got to go back and then tell you how you got there. That's kind of what I like to do in this series. I want to start in the middle at probably the climatic pinnacle of David's life, and then we'll work backwards and say, how did he get here? And so I'm going to be there in the middle. So that's where we're going to start. And it begins with David has just unified his reign and rule as king over Israel because for a season, David had a reign out of Hebron, and there was another king from the house of Saul. And so finally, God did away with all of David's enemies. David is now squarely planted in the city of Jerusalem. He has just defeated all of his enemies. He's built himself a beautiful palace. Life is good, really good for King David. And in the moment, 
David wants to honor his God, and he wants to do something for God. And it says this then in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Here's where we'll begin, verse 1. After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all of his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Now, here he is. He's sitting in a nice cedar palace, living the good life, and he's grateful for God. He understands that God has done this for him, and he realizes, I'm living in this beautiful palace, and the Ark of the Covenant is still out in that tent. Now, I don't know if you remember from the Old Testament, but in the Old Testament, the Ark of the Covenant moved around in what was called a tabernacle. And the tabernacle was sort of like a tent, so to speak. It was mobile. So from marching out of the Exodus into uh, Joshua's administration, I mean, what happened? You see the tabernacle moving all along. And so when David settles in the city of Jerusalem, he recognizes, you know, it's not right that I'm sitting in this palace, and out there is the Ark of the Covenant that is, belongs to God, and it's in a tent. So he contrasts that situation, decides, I want to build God a house and a temple. Something that will really honor him and glorify him. Now, what I want you to see are the verbs here, that David wants to do something for God. He wants to build something for God. And I'd like to just point out once again, going back to that stereotypical generalized way, that this impulse, I think, can be key to men's spirituality. That men typically want to do something for God. And I don't think that's changed much in the thousands of years since King David that's, that men primarily like to do something by action, adventure, risk that honors and glorifies God. And I think that is an authentic expression of allegiance and devotion to God. And, and if we exalt the right feelings with God or the right affections with God or some relational ethereal experience with God to the neglect of the impulse to want to do something for God, I think we will cut out an essential aspect of spirituality for a lot of men. Because here's what I know. A lot of men feel like they're spiritual duds because they can't seem to ever sustain the right emotional feelings that they think they're supposed to have about God. Which is the truth. A lot of men are walking around and they like they, every once in a great while they might hit on it, but they can't sustain it. Then they walk away and they think, I'm a spiritual failure. I, I just can't sustain this feeling. And I think there's a lot of men who feel like they're spiritual duds because they're just not able to sit down for an hour with their quiet time with God every day. So every year, they re-up. I'm gonna, this year, I'm going to do an hour-long quiet time with God. And then the third day of January, they've already missed it, and they walk away feeling like failures. Or a lot of men feel like they're flunking out of the spiritual growth business because they seem to lack the intense and emotional relational responses that sometimes they see reflected in their wives. And a lot of men feel like they stink when it comes to this Christian thing because they just don't want to sit around and talk for hours about their relationship with God. Sadly, what I'd say is a lot of wives, I think, believe that their husbands are spiritual duds or not spiritual leaders because they don't seem like they're capable of doing those things. But what I'm contending is, without diminishing the value of those other things, hear me say that, without diminishing the value of those other things, I would just like to add to it that sometimes doing something for God and building something for God can be just as legitimate means of devotion and allegiance to God as sitting around in a circle talking about how we feel about God for hours. And the first time I saw this real clearly was even here at the Livingstones Church, we had a gentleman here who was serving a lot in regards to just our building and our facilities. He's always here working on things, building things, fixing things, so much so that I worried about his family. Like I thought, dude, you're here so many hours. Like you get off work, come here, you spend hours in the evening here. And then I thought, you, like, you need to go home and spend time there. Like your family, I'm thinking this is hurting your family. And in the conversation, it became very clear to me that 
No, his relationship to Jesus was so intimately connected to what was happening by way of his ability to do and to build that that was for him an expression of devotion and love. And if I were going to take that away from him, it'd be the same, the same thing as saying to him, hey, you can't pray for an hour every morning. That's not going to work out for you. You need to go. And, and it dawned on me, no, this is just as legitimate as an expression of allegiance and devotion to God as anything else we might put up there in regards to what is it we should be doing. And it hit me like a ton of bricks, and I realized, oh, yeah. See, as we think about spiritual growth and what it means to be allegiance to Jesus and connected to Jesus, it could take on many different aspects. Now, I'm not denying any of the relational, emotional, or sentimental aspects of the spiritual life. I'm just saying for most men, they're not our primary go-to. And we can hold up the value of deep relationships, and we should, and, and value intimate conversations, and we should. But with God at times, the values of risk and adventure and problem-solving and effort and building and doing those should be admissible as well. And you know this in terms, if you're married, you get this sometime tension in the relationship where guys are fixers, you know? Like the woman just, I just need you to listen to me. I just need you to hear me. I don't need you. And the guys want to rush in and fix everything because that's what we were fixers. Like we're not, if you want to talk about it, let's fix it. That's kind of how we, that's kind of, that's an age old problem. And you've probably, it looks like this. Take a look at this video to illustrate what this looks like. It's just, there's all this pressure, you know? And sometimes it feels like it's right up on me and I can just feel it, like literally feel it in my head and it's relentless. And I don't know if it's gonna stop. I mean, that's the thing that scares me the most is that I don't know if it's ever gonna stop. Yeah. Well, you do have a nail in your head. It is not about the nail. Are you sure? Because, I mean, I'll bet if we got that out of there. Stop trying to fix it. No, I'm not trying to fix it. I'm just pointing out that maybe the nail is causing. You always do this. You always try to fix things when what I really need is for you to just listen. No, see, I don't think that is what you need. I think what you need is to get the nail See, out. you're not even listening now. Okay, fine. I will listen. Fine. It's just, sometimes it's like there's this achy, I don't know what it is. And I'm not sleeping very well at all. And all my sweaters are snagged. I mean, all of them. I, that sounds really hard. It is. Thank you. Ow! Oh, come on. Ow. If you would just... Don't! Try to see things my way. Do I have to keep on talking till I can go? I have a few marriage counselors I could recommend after the service should anyone need to. Okay, here we go. Back to David is at this moment. He has this impulse to do. He has this impulse to build in honor of God. And so the prophet Nathan says back to the king. This is what he says, verse 3. I think this is interesting. Nathan replies to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it for the Lord is with you. Right? Nathan's thinking, God's clearly with this dude. I mean, everything he's touched has seemed to be with God's favor. And this sounds like a great idea. He wants to build God a house. Everything he touches seems to succeed. So surely God is okay with this. Now, one side note, it is a prophetic faux pas to speak on behalf of God without asking him first, which Nathan actually does. But the good news is I don't think God is irritated with Nathan. In fact, I think God probably understands. No, that's true. In the main, everything this guy does is with my favor, and it seems to succeed. So that evening, God has to come to Nathan and give him the word to give back to David. So here it is. This is in verse 4. The word from God to Nathan to give to King David. 
But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, I want you to go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all of your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. Now, just as a timeout, could you imagine, this is like, we're talking 3,000 years ago. Like, could you imagine hearing God say, well, let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to make your name great. In fact, one of the greatest names on the face of the earth. And what if God were to say, no, I mean like 3,000 years from now in South Bend, Indiana, some dude's going to get up in front of a whole church and tell your story. And it will be like that for thousands of years. That's, how, that's what I'm going to do for you. I mean, could you imagine 3,000 years from now if the Lord should wait? Which, ooh, that's a lot. I mean, get, but somebody would tell your story. Verse 10. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning. And I have done this ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. Now here, listen. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. You see what God does there? What does David want to do? I'd like to build God a house. What What does God do? He flips that on his head and says, oh, no, I'm going to build you a house. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I'm going to raise up your offspring to succeed you. It will be your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. Now, this is a big deal because back in the days of David, dynasties could be very short-lived. I mean, you lived in continual insecurity and paranoia whether or not any of your sons would actually succeed you to the throne or would some other family line, some other dynasty come in and take And what God is promising, he's making, he's entering into a covenant with David and saying, it will be from your own flesh and blood. One of your sons will sit on your throne. I mean, do you know what it would feel like as a king to have such assurance? And he says, in fact, the very next one, your son, who will be Solomon, by the way, He will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I'm going to be his father, and he's going to be my son. And when he does wrong, I'm going to punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever, forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And this is what Nathan reported to, the, to David, all the words of this entire revelation. Now, this is amazing to me. Like, this in my mind is, I mean, David has a lot of events in his life, a lot of amazing things, but I think this is the climax and the pinnacle, the peak of his entire life. He has just entered in with the God of the universe, a covenant, where God says, let me tell you how much I love David. And how much I'm going to, I know you're trying to honor me by building me a house, but let me tell you how much I love you and how I'm going to honor you. I just think this is incredible that God sees David's heart and his desire to honor him. And God says, oh, no, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. And God flips the whole thing on David. You're trying to show me your love and devotion. I know and I get it, but I'm going to show you the extent of my love and my devotion. I know you want to build me a house, but I'm going to build you a house. And God makes a promise 
both of a house and a dynasty, a son of yours will sit on the throne forever. And could you imagine what David's heart must have felt like in this moment? I mean, could you imagine how humbling it would be for the God of the universe to speak back and to give you such kindness and generosity and love? I can't help but just be overwhelming and amazing and humbling. And in fact, what, this is what we see break out in verse 18. Here's David's response. He prays to God after hearing this. And his first response is what I think any of ours would have been. So then King David went in and sat before the Lord. He said, who am I? You hear what David's saying? I can't believe you're doing this. I mean, who in the world am I that you would do that? Really? You're going to make my name great? You're going to build my house, my dynasty? I mean, who, who am I? Sovereign Lord. And what is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, Sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant in, in this decree. Sovereign Lord is for, a, is for a mere human. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, Sovereign Lord. For the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done these, this great thing and made it known to your servant. How great you are, Sovereign Lord. There's no one like you and there's no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself and to make a name for himself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people, whom you redeemed from Egypt. You have established your people Israel as your very own forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you promised, so that your name will be great forever. Then people will say, the Lord Almighty is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established in your sight. Lord Almighty God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you. So your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Sovereign Lord, you are God. Your covenant is trustworthy, and you have promised these good things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, sovereign Lord, have spoken, and with your blessing, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. See, this is David's ultimate expression of, who in the world am I? And I don't mind saying I have the same question. Why David? What was it about him that God took pleasure in honoring in this way? What is it about David that God would say, I'm going to establish his house forever? And a lot has happened, but this seems to me to be the peak where God enters into a covenant and makes promises. And this is what I want to study over the next six weeks. The question is this, why David? Why did God pick David? What was it about this man that when the God of the universe needed to choose someone, he chose him? Because I don't believe it was random. I don't think God was flipping some cosmic coin that it just happenstance landed on tails and ta-da, David, you're it. I don't think God was playing a rock, paper, scissor game with some archangel that eventually resulted in King David's selection. This isn't chance. This isn't accidental. There's something about this man that God can see, and it's those attributes that I believe makes God say, I choose him. And if you study the life of David, you will see a consistent theme throughout his life. You'll see what I would say is sort of like a code that he lives by, that a guiding principle through all of David's life experiences. And it begins when he's just a little boy, that David has committed himself to certain attributes. And it's because of those attributes that I think God can look down from heaven and say, that man is a man after my own heart, and I can trust him. And I could give him the mantle of leadership over my people because David's life and the complexity of his life, in the end you'll see a string of things like this. David always lives with honor. Honor towards God and honor towards other people. David will always live with faith. It starts at such an early age that David will live with courage. 
and humility and repentance and obedience and righteousness and zeal. And these are the things, the characteristics and attributes that guides David to be a man after God's own heart. And I believe these are the spiritual attributes and characteristics that should guide us in our spiritual life as well. And so I close with this. I think if every man is really honest, he does care about the legacy that he leaves. And he's aware that he's leaving a dynasty or a house for successive generations. And no man wants to leave a decrepit, falling down house. We want to leave a lasting legacy. We want our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren to walk in the blessing of a house that God blessed us with. Because we're aware that if it's left solely up to us, this house isn't going to be very good. It's going to have a weak foundation because we know our sins, we know our shortcomings, and while we might not whisper them to anybody else, deep down our prayer is is that God will keep his hands over those dark spaces in our heart that those things don't get out and manifest in our children. And if we're going to pass on a house and a name and a dynasty, it will have to be God's gracious act of mercy to say, oh no, I don't need you to build me a house, I'm going to build you a house. So you might not be so great at sitting in a quiet place for an hour, having quiet time with God, but I'm telling you, you could still have honor in your heart towards God and other people. And you might not ever have made it through an entire Beth Moore study, but I'm telling you, you could still have faith in your heart. And you might not have ever been overcome with emotion, just found yourself weeping about the goodness of Jesus as you listened to a Hillsong United CD but you could still have courage in your heart. And you might not have ever been very good at expressing verbally how much Jesus means to you, but that doesn't mean you can't live a life of great humility. And you might not have ever been great at sticking out that uversion.com Bible reading plan for the year, but you can have zeal in your heart for God. And that's where we're going as we open up the scriptures over the next six weeks to learn from a warrior king named David who was called to duty for the sake of God's people because... He was a man after God's own heart. And the ups and downs, the weaknesses, the triumphs, that in the end he was willing to do what God needed him to do. And that's what we'll examine over the next six weeks. Let's stand together and let's pray. Father, the truth is we need you to flip our lives upside down in such a way that even though we want to express to you our allegiance and our devotion, What we really depend on and need is for you to intervene and to say and to speak one of our lives, I will establish a house and a legacy. That what we leave behind, Lord, we want for our children and grandchildren, for them to be able to honor you and to bring glory to your name. And so we acknowledge and confess our shortcomings and our weaknesses and the things that we walk around sometimes feeling insecure about. But in the end, we want to have hearts that burn 